Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us this time to gather together in your house, Lord. Lord, thank you that you are going before us, that your word is true, that you are always there for us. Lord, do ask that you'd be with these backpacks that have been donated, Lord. Just ask that you work through that to just be a ministry in Appalachia, Lord, that somehow through that children would come to know you, Lord. Lord, ask that you be with these tithes and offerings. Just bless them to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
it's interesting to me anyway. This book that came off of my shelf. Do you touch that? Do you feel that? What does that feel like? Feels a little bit like grass. Yeah, it's it's covered in fake grass. And it's called a sport book. Alright. Everybody get a chance to, to touch it there? What a coincidence. Yes, yes. So in here are lots of different games and sports and events that you can that you can play. Hold on, if you'll sit down, I'll, when I find one, I'll show it to you. How about that? Okay. There's all different kinds. So let's just let me just. Oh, that was a good one. Um, well, I lost it. Anyway, there was tug of war. There's ice hockey. Uh, there's there's tug of war. See, it's up here, um, right here. Guys, it shows a picture of guys there holding a rope and they're pulling. Dodgeball over here. Um, ultimate Frisbee, or I guess they can't say Frisbee because that's a registered <coughs> trademark of the Whammo Corporation. Um, <laughs> but uh, rifle shooting, and uh, let's see what else we have. Oh, there's animal sports. Yeah, like show jumping, and there's, there's dog racing in here. There's swimming, and uh, just all different kinds of competitions and that kind of thing. Now, this just this little book, it has lots of different things. It, it has rules in it. tells you, you know, the dimensions of the field that you're supposed to play on. It tells you whether you need a bat or a helmet, what kind of ball you're supposed to use, or a disc, or, or a racket, or whatever you need to use to play that game, okay? Now, if I read this, if I didn't know anything about a game, and I, and I read this little section in here, uh, do you think that would make me an expert? It, it, it probably wouldn't make me an expert. I might know what the rules are on it a little bit, but there's something that could that could help me out if I really wanted to know how a game was played. I might go here and, and read and get a good understanding. But you know what would, would be even better is to read this and then maybe get a group of people that have actually played that game before and, and talk to them a little bit or uh, get that group of people and then go out and play the game and get involved in the game and play the game and then learn even better about that particular game. Right? Like if I thought about tug of war and I wanted to learn how to play tug of war, I need to read up on the rules, maybe talk to people that have played tug of war, and then go and, and have some fun pulling on a rope. Okay? And when, when you think about it, our Christian walk is a little bit like that. We have the Bible that tells us all kinds of things that we need to know. You know, and we, we can read this, and I hope you do, but I hope you read this and then listen. It's really important to get with people with other people who, who understand what's in here and talk about what's in here and talk about how you, uh, you take what's in the Bible and live your life that way. That's why, are you listening? That's why, like, Sunday school is so important. That's why Sunday school is so important because you get together with other people and you discuss how, what's in God's Word. And you discuss how do we take God's Word and make it fit as part of my life. You see, you see how that works out? So I could learn about the rules of the game. I could probably tell you the dimensions of the field or the sport by looking at this book. And, and I could learn a lot about it. But it's so much better when I get together with other people and discuss it and play the game. You read your Bible? I want you to come to Sunday school, too, and be a part of a group of, of people that come and, and, and talk with each other and, and uh, encourage one another and pray for one another. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to pray uh, right now. Okay, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. There's nothing that replaces 
your word. But God, uh, there is nothing else like getting together with a group of believers who have all studied your word. And we get together and we talk about those stories and we, and we talk about how uh, the Bible uh, impacts our life. So God, I pray that we will always champion the Bible, but we'll always want to get together with other people and work through those difficult things that the Bible teaches us. Guide us and lead us and may we follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stand once again if you're saved. standing as we share God's word together this morning from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 17. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to 
God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it teaches and instructs us today, Lord. May we understand it correctly and apply it appropriately to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Be seated. Gentlemen, I know you have been sticking with me through 36 sermons on the book of Ephesians to get to the part about wives submitting, and I promise you it is coming. If you read ahead, you will find that we are ever so closely to that verse that so many men are, are hoping that I give them just something to cling to there, uh, and you'll have to wait just a little bit longer to find out. Today, however, we have another interesting topic that, um, that certainly gets um, dealt with from time to time, and people feel very differently across the scope of evangelical circles about this idea that is presented to us here in the book of Ephesians. Now, I've made no bones about it in my time here that I'm a teetotaler when it comes to alcohol. I think it doesn't have any, it doesn't belong in, in, in our lives, and that's my, that's my, that's my take on that. Uh, but we will tackle this in a little bit of a different way this morning, maybe in a way that you've not ever considered. Uh, a man in South Africa actually holds the record for being the drunkest person to ever survive. According to a report from a South African newspaper that I couldn't pronounce, the man was allegedly 32 times over the legal alcohol limit. His blood had an alcohol content equivalent in U.S. measurements to uh, a BAC of 1.6%. That means that almost uh, out of 100 parts of blood, one almost 2% of what was contained in his blood was alcohol. Uh, he was driving a Mercedes-Benz and was arrested near Queenstown in the Eastern Cape around 11 p.m. on a Wednesday night. In the car with him were five boys as well as a woman. They were also arrested because in the car with them was 15 sheep that had been stolen from nearby farms. Now, this guy obviously had had far more than his fair share of experience with intoxicating drink to be able to survive such a, a toxic amount of alcohol in his body. They tell us that a, a blood alcohol content of 0.4% is often fatal, uh, at least uh, invoking coma, a coma in the person who has such a high alcohol content, yet this man had nearly four times that amount of alcohol in his body. Now, before you laugh too much, you'd better pray that in your wilder days there were no stories of you stealing sheep from the countryside in a drunken stupor. <laughs> I don't want to hear the stories. And you probably don't remember them, so uh, we're in good shape. Last week, Paul challenged us in verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We talked about this last week, that, that part of God's will for us is that we be wise stewards of the minutes on our clock. It only makes sense that one of the quickest ways to waste those very sacred minutes is to spend them in drunkenness. We said last week that our time is our most precious commodity because it's the only resource that we can't get more of. We can hone our skills and our talents and our abilities. We can work to get more money, but there's no bank where we can go find seconds to add to our clock. It is, in fact, our scarcest of resources. 
And so part of God's will for us that's very evident here is that we not squander those moments that we have, those limited moments that we have with empty pursuits. And the reality is, in the context of this idea, drunkenness is the ultimate squander when we stop and think about it. It doesn't give us one iota of benefit. It doesn't help us help other people. And ultimately, it's a completely selfish endeavor. Not to mention, it's one of the most grievous wastes of times because eventually when you wake up from the drunkenness, you're not even clear about how you spent the minutes wasted during your intoxication. So you can't even keep track of the time that was spent, the time that was lost. And let's not forget about the strong words that Paul uses here to describe drunkenness, that it is something that leads to debauchery. Now that's probably not a word that you hear very often in today's culture. I challenge you in tomorrow morning at the water cooler, ask your co-workers who perhaps spend a little bit more of a wild weekend than you do if they enjoyed their debauchery over the weekend. And I suspect that they probably won't know what you are talking about. And just in case you don't know what debauchery is, thankfully Webster tells us that. He says that debauchery is extreme indulgence in bodily pleasures, especially sexual pleasures, behavior involving sex, drugs, alcohol, that is often considered immoral. I wish Webster would be a little more firm in his definition. So we can clearly see that drunkenness is wrong. From a stewardship standpoint, we waste time, precious time, that we can't get back. We clearly see that it's wrong from a moral standpoint because it leads to debauchery. And I'm having a hard time trying to make debauchery sound moral. Having a hard time equating what we do as Christians gathered together in the body of Christ, I'm having a difficult time considering that anything debaucherous. But just in case you're not sold, Drunkenness is also wrong from a health standpoint. From the damage that results to your body, either directly or indirectly, as a result of drunkenness, to the simple fact that drunkenness at its most basic level is a form of poisoning. It's a form of poisoning. Now, it's a form that your body is able to deal with. It metabolizes the toxin in your liver, but it's a slow process. And unless you're a South, Af a South African sheep thief, it's very possible that you can overwhelm the system, resulting in loss of consciousness or, God forbid, even death. And for icing on the cake, just in case you're not sold yet, I'm sure that I could invite any of our first responders or medical professionals that are here in the building today, I'm sure I could invite them to come up and give you plenty of stories of cutting people out of cars, pulling children out of car seats, and pulling sheets over the face of those who didn't make it because of the despicable consequences of alcohol. In case you needed a little more evidence. But this passage is not about drunkenness. You say it says don't get drunk on wine. Yeah, yeah, it does, at least not directly. It's not about drunkenness, at least not directly. Paul uses the well-known perils of drunkenness to communicate a significant spiritual lesson for his readers, i.e. us. Because we all know that when a person is drunk, they are not in control of themselves. They've lost control of their faculties. They've lost control of their emotions. They've lost control of their speech. They've lost control of themselves. They have surrendered control that they normally possess to the effects of alcohol and the consequences are for, more frequently than not disastrous. 
those who are in Christ, there's something much better. Paul says, don't be filled with alcohol, because that's what leads to drunkenness, right? How do you get drunk? Well, you fill yourself with alcohol. That's how you get drunk. Paul here says, don't fill yourself with alcohol. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Instead of drunkenness that's caused by you over-consuming alcohol, instead, Paul says, let me offer you a different alternative. Instead, you should be filled with the Spirit. If you're going to surrender control to something, why not send, surrender control to something that has your best interest in mind and God's glory at heart? Why surrender control to something that, that's beyond any of our control when you can surrender yourself completely and totally to Jesus working through God the Holy Spirit in your life? What a great thing to surrender to. Well, what exactly does a spirit-filled life look like? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul said. Well, there's a, there's a question that has to be asked. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How do we become Spirit-filled? Now, there is a Pentecostal tradition here that wrongly asserts that this refers to some sort of subsequent blessing, subsequent conversion, or some sort of, of higher spiritual experience. That in order to be spirit-filled, you have to have a second baptism, a baptism of the Holy Spirit that's frequently followed, or I guess in Pentecostal circles will be always followed, by speaking in tongues. Of course, that's an extra-biblical interpretation of some things there, but that's, that's one interpretation of this. But one thing that jumps out to me in reading this is that, is that obviously when Paul says be filled with the Spirit, he's not talking about every single Christian. Every single Christian is not filled with the Spirit. You say, whoa, pastor, I thought, you, I thought we believed that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us as Christians. Well, well, he does. There's no doubt there. But it goes without saying that if there is an instruction here to be filled with the Spirit, then there must be something that we can do to, to achieve this, right? Because if if it's, if it's already a default, right, if it's already a default for you, then there's no need to say be filled with the Spirit. But if there is a possibility of being filled with the Spirit, then there's something we need to pursue here. And so he's using this, this idea of drunkenness as, a, as an antidotal sort of, sort of evidence for us that, that in the same way that you are filled with alcohol and become drunk, that there needs to be something in our lives that causes us to be filled with the Spirit. Otherwise, these are unnecessary commands. Well, how do we become spirit-filled? Well, the same way that we, we get drunk. We consume more of it. We consume more of it. You get drunk by consuming more alcohol. You become spirit-filled by consuming more of those things which, which are, are, are spirit-led. And, 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 and perhaps, I guess, the, the best sense of this is, is that we consume those things which are of the Spirit. Now, obviously, we consider the Scriptures as a source of this, as, as a source of this filling. We, you want to be Spirit-filled? A great place to start is to make sure that God's Word is a steady part of your diet. Make sure that it's a steady part of, of your spiritual diet, that you are consuming the Word of God. This isn't just casual, I get a verse or two in Sunday school or a verse or two in worship. Because you know me, when you come to church on Sunday morning, you're going to get a couple of verses out of the book that I'm, I'm working through. You're not going to get chunks of Scripture. You're not going to consume large portions of Scripture. We're going to talk about a few passages, a few verses, and get really close with them, but you're not going to be consuming a lot of it. And let me say this, that if you are only consuming God's Word in Sunday school or in worship on Sunday morning, you are starving yourself to death from a spiritual standpoint. You are starving yourself to death. 
We obviously know that God's word is, 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 is inspired by God, that it is, it is perfect in all of its ways. And when we talk about wanting to be filled with the spirit, the best place to start is to make sure that we are consuming this book and this scripture, that we are making sure that it is a steady part of our life, a steady part of our devotional time. It's good to pray, but it's important that we spend time in God's word on a regular and consistent basis. I guarantee that if we were to ask for a show of hands, we'd probably be shocked at the number of people who don't crack open their Bible during the week. And I won't ask for that today. We wonder why the church today is so anemic that it seems that the church has no power because we're full of people that don't open the Bible on a regular basis. We're not consuming the, the very food that's designed to give us the spiritual energy that we need. So obviously we have to consider the scriptures as a place to, to, to be filled, as a way to, 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 to fill ourselves more with this. But, but think about this. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, well, what are they doing? Well, they're setting their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, well, what are they doing? Well, they're setting their mind on things of the spirit. You want to be spirit-filled, a great thing to do is to set your mind on the things of the spirit. If, if your diet consists of things of the flesh, don't be surprised when, when you feel very anemic as a believer. You just don't feel very powerful in Christ. You just don't feel like there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of mojo there in your life. Whatever that is. You ever, mojo? What is that? You, you just don't feel that in your heart. You feel like you're 100 miles away from God. Well, it may very well be because your mind is not set on the things of the Spirit. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, well, these are the things you ought to be thinking about. These are the things that you ought to be dwelling on. These are the things that you ought to be consuming. If you want to be spirit-filled, consume these things. I wonder, though, how many of us are filling our lives and our hearts with junk. We're not filling our hearts and lives with these lovely, honorable, true, pure, commendable, praiseworthy things. Instead, we're filling our hearts and our minds with junk food. Instead of being filled with the things of God, we're filling ourselves with the things that are godless. Well, here's a simple test. Consider the stuff that you consume. Now, this is easy if you're on a diet. Anybody ever been on a diet and tried to count calories? I tried this one time. I I have a confession to make. I have an unhealthy appreciation for Pop-Tarts. <laughs> Especially the strawberry ones with the icing on top or the brown sugar with the cinnamon icing on top. Uh, and I, I said, you know what? I want to try to eat a little healthier, so let's start looking at some labels. And so I grabbed the box of Pop-Tarts because they make a mean not bedtime snack. Right? I'm a little hungry, a little, little, uh, just need a little something light, so some Pop-Tarts. I mean, it's a pastry. What's wrong with that? And I looked at the, 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 the side of the box of Pop-Tarts to read what can, was contained therein, and it's like a pack of Pop-Tarts had 400 calories. 400 calories! And they're not very filling, right? Otherwise, we could make a meal out of Pop-Tarts, but if we don't typically eat meals when we're a little, little hungry before bedtime, right? At least we probably shouldn't. It's probably not in our best interest. 400 calories in a box of Pop-Tarts, and there's nothing there. There's absolutely nothing there, and I don't even know what the rest of the stuff is in there. I don't even want to get into hydrogenated 
partially, well, whatever all that stuff is. How many of us are filling our spiritual lives with, with spiritual Pop-Tarts? Just junk food. It's not good for us. It's, it, it maybe knocks a little craving off, but at the end of the day, it's done nothing but make us unhealthy. It's a simple test. We can obviously do this with a diet. Can we do it with spiritual things as well? Sure. Real simple. What entertainment are we consuming? Well, I don't eat my entertainment. No, but you sure do consume it. You consume your entertainment. What is your entertainment doing for you? What music are you listening to? What television are you tuning into? What about your social media feed? Is it doing anything beneficial for you? Is it helping you grow closer to God? Or is it just mindless pursuits that take our mind off the things of today? Think about it this way. What if you consider the things of God with as much time and enthusiasm as you spend on the television or social media? What would the effect be of such a, such a radical decision? What would the effect be if, if instead of an hour you spend on Facebook each day, to spend an hour just seeing what God's Word says each day? What would the effect of such a, such a decision be? Well, you know what one of the consequences would be is, is if, if you've got a cup and it only holds so much, is that if you remove some of the trash off the top, that that spirit starts to fill up some more of it. You become, you become spirit-filled. This is what Paul is talking about here. And one of the effects of such a thing is, is, is really beautiful. What's Paul say here? He says, we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your isn't that an interesting transition? He goes from not getting drunk on wine because it leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In the same way that you get drunk by drinking too much, you can be filled with the Spirit by consuming the things of God. And the consequence of such a thing, Paul says here, is that we address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That we sing and we make melody to the Lord with our heart. I love that God loves good music. I love that God loves good music. And music is something that people have had for a very, very long time. We read in Genesis chapter 4 that the first musical instruments were used within the first seven generations after Adam. Seven generations, they were figuring out civilization, and within, in the seventh generation, part of that civilization was that they learned how to, how to make music with musical instruments. We've had musical instruments to be used for, obviously, godless purposes, but God's also used them in his purposes as well, from as far back as seven generations after Adam. His name was Jubal. He was the first person that we know of to put together musical instruments. We even have a big professional choir in the Georgia Baptist uh, churches here known as the Sons of Jubal. I don't think it's a coincidence that the most prominent book in the Bible is what? The Psalms, which is a song book. You can't... Oh, I, Open your Bible up. The odds of you open into the book of Psalms is, is, is very high if you're unintentional because it's a, it's a huge book of the Bible. It's located right in the middle of our Bible. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32 tells us that the wisest man to ever live spent some of his time and wisdom composing songs. 1 Kings 4, 32 says that King Solomon wrote a thousand and five songs in his time. He spent... Precious moments. I mean, if you're the wisest man in the world ruling over a pretty significant kingdom, made some mistakes, 
He's got precious time on his hands, and he spent precious time writing a thousand and five songs. You see, in spite of the attention that the Bible gives to music, in spite of the command that Paul says here that we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it is very interesting that the Bible doesn't speak much to musical style. It doesn't tell us about what instruments we really should use or shouldn't use. It doesn't tell us what the tempo should be or what the tempo shouldn't be. It doesn't tell us if we should sing in 4-4 time or 6-8 time. I suspect it's Hebrew, so it's got to be some weird time that none of us know. It doesn't spend a lot of time talking about musical style, but it's something that the church today spends a tremendous amount of time arguing about and, and talking about. Just interesting. And the fact of the matter is, is that Paul suggests pay attention, that there are a variety of types of music that should be part of the repertoire of the Spirit-filled Christian. He didn't just say, speak to one another in psalms. He didn't just say, sing only out of this hymn book that was published by the Apostle Peter. He said, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God's Word embraces a variety. What is this variety pointing to? Well, we know what psalms are, right? Everybody know what a psalm is? Shake your head, yes. Okay? There's a book full of them. If you don't know what a psalm is, do what I said a minute ago. Open to the middle of your Bible. You'll find a whole slew of psalms that you can say, oh, I know what a psalm is now. There's a bunch of them in your Bible. Okay? So everybody knows what a psalm is. They're scripture songs. Isn't it interesting how surprisingly few psalms we sing? Isn't that interesting? You go to churches all over today, and you'll sing hymns. We know what those are. They come out of the book, right? You'll sing worship choruses and things like that, that that may be presented in a different way with different instruments and things like that. But in churches today, you we sing surprisingly few psalms. The only exception would be if someone takes a psalm and perhaps turns those words into lyrics in a modern chorus. When's the last time we just sat down and sang a psalm? Well, for one, we've not had composers put it to music that we understand that we can sing. It's been void in today's church. When we sing the psalms, though, we don't have to worry about whether the song is, has sound doctrine or whether it's true. These are songs that God wrote. They're part of his Bible. They're without error. Believe it or not, the songs that we sing today can have some errors to them. Um, you, there are songs on the radio today that, that, that have errors in them, theological and doctrinal errors. They're not inerrant as the scriptures are. There's hymns in the hymn book that have got some things in them that may or may not be all that great. But God's word is perfect. When we sing the psalms, if we sing the psalms, we're singing songs that are without error. Yet we find it hard-pressed today to find churches actually singing psalms. And that's something that I wish our music community today would begin to address. When we look at hymns and spiritual songs, it becomes a little tougher to define the difference. I'm fairly confident when Paul wrote this that he didn't have the Baptist hymnal in mind when he was thinking about hymns. It may simply be that Paul used a couple of generic musical terms to cover some of the variety that had already started to develop within Christian worship. I know, I love how John Piper deals with this, and some of you don't like John Piper, and that's okay. Um, John Piper says this, he reminds us that there's a reason for different kinds of music. The main reason is that God is infinitely varied in his beauty, and he relates to us in profoundly and wonderfully different ways. For instance, if you experience God 
in the death of your four daughters and your wife in the sinking of a ship, you may write, it is well with my soul. If you are overwhelmed with the truth of the incarnation of Christmas time, you may write, joy to the world. If God meets you simply and quietly in your prayer closet, you may write, Father, I adore you. I lay my life before you. If you are stunned at the marvel that you are saved, you may write, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. If you're a Sunday school teacher, longing to teach your students profound things in simple ways, you may write simply, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, here's a simple truth. Worship is a product of being spirit-filled. Worship is a product of being spirit-filled. We are a singing people, and God has had music and instrumentation and singing as part of his worship from the very, very beginning. And the truth is, is that there are things about God that are, can't be dealt with simply in conversation. They can't be dealt with simply in teaching and preaching. There are things about God that simply need to be sung and appreciated through music, right? There's things that you can hear the greatest sermon in the world, but there's still things that move us beyond sermons when you hear that song that speaks to you in a particular time or a particular place. I'll tell you, when we do the song always here, it's, our, it's part of our church. That's a song that's been sung at a couple of funerals of, of, of people that I, I had tremendous respect for. And I hear that song, and it, it hits me right in the feeler every time. Every time. Because that was a song that God used to minister to me during a time of need. And it's not in the hymnal. It may not ever be in the hymnal. But it's a song that God uses to minister to me. And there are things, people can use words, but that song speaks to me in a way that sometimes words don't. The simple truth is this. Worship, according to Paul here, is a product of being spirit-filled. And since it's spirit-filled, how do we know what good worship is? How do we know when worship and when music is appropriate? Well, there's three things here. First is this. It has to be truth. If our worship does not align with Scripture, then our worship is not truly of the Spirit. If our worship, if the songs that we sing and the, the things that we use and incorporate in worship, if that does not line up with what God's Word teaches us and with what God's Word tells us, then it has no place in Christian worship. It doesn't matter if it makes us feel good. It doesn't matter if it, if it satisfies some emotional need that we have. If it doesn't line up with the Scripture, it doesn't belong in Christian worship. The reality is, is there's some songs that we sing today in quote-unquote Christian worship that don't ever say the name of God or point to the person of Jesus. There are songs that we sing today that can just as easily be sung to your lover, to your spouse, in as much as they can be sang to God Almighty. That's the reality today. So if our worship, if our music, if our songs do not speak with truth and do not align with Scripture, then that part of our worship needs to be evaluated and taken out if we can't find how it speaks to truth. We have to deal with that. Jesus said that there would be one day that we would worship how? In spirit and what? And in truth. We worship in truth. If you find yourself visiting a church or going to a worship service and, and somebody stands up and tries to sing a song that's not true and that's not based in scriptures, is not, is not reinforced or reinforcing something that we get from God's word, it's not of God. It's not of God. I appreciate our worship leaders here. 
because our worship leaders here work hard to make sure that the music that we do here, that we worship together with as a congregation, is biblically solid and biblically sound. And I appreciate that. Because there's never the question, well, does that really belong in church? Does that really belong in Christian worship? Does that really belong here? No, because one of the criteria of spirit-filled worship is that it's true. Secondly, and I love this, Paul is very clear, we should be making melody in our hearts. True worship that spirit fills should be heartfelt. It should be heartfelt. If you find yourself in worship and you're just here going through the motions and you're not really in it, that says something's going on with you spiritually. You say, I just don't like to sing, Pastor. I just don't like to, I don't like to lend my voice to song. That's not altogether healthy. That's not necessarily good. Because Scripture commands that we do. Now, it doesn't mean that, that we only worship God and we only worship God and we're feeling on top of the world, you know, when we're, when we're like this with the Lord, right? Because sometimes we're not. Matter of fact, David, at the darkest moment of his life, when he was confronted about his adultery with Bathsheba, what did he do? He wrote a song, Psalm 51. I'm sure he didn't sing it with a lot of enthusiasm. I'm sure there wasn't a, 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 a guitar solo that he, he strummed out in the middle of it. I'm sure it was a song that was written and sung through tears and grief because he was in a place and a point in his life of deep despair. But that song is how he expressed his repentance to the Lord. It's not saying that we have to, to, to always be stomping our foot and having a good time with a smile on our face because the reality is, is that our walk with God is not always about tapping our toes and smiling, putting a smile on our face. Sometimes there are dark times in our walk. Sometimes there's suffering that we go through. Sometimes there's challenges that we face, but it doesn't mean that our worship is not heartfelt. Sometimes it's hard to sing, search me, O God, know my heart, and see if there's any offensive ways in me. Because the reality is, is if you ask him that in song or prayer, he may just show you. And it may not be a pretty thing that he shows you. Thirdly, congregationally, how does Paul say we should sing? This is so important. To one another. To one another. It's great that you've got your worship CD in your car and that you can sing when nobody's listening. That's fantastic. I'm thrilled that you've got your favorite radio station that plays Christian music and you hum along and you love the songs. But Paul says here that we should be doing this to one another. What does that mean? Well, that means that you can't do it alone. You can't worship God alone. You can't worship musically. You can't worship God alone. It's not the same. It's not the same thing. We ought to be singing to one another. Does that mean that there's room for solos in a, in a biblical worship service? Sure. Sure. They should be good because they are to the Lord. It is an offering to God. So should a solo be something I just throw together at the last minute and don't ever work on? I hope not because it's for the Lord. It ought to be the very best thing we have to offer. It ought to be the very best thing we have. Is there room for choir where, where the congregation listens to the choir sing? Absolutely. Because we're singing one to another. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Is there room for a band to lead the church and worship where we all sing and lift our voices together? Where maybe your neighbor sings louder than you think he should, but he's still singing because he's in love with Jesus? Is there room for that in the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we're to sing to one another in psalms and hymns. 
this is a product of being spirit-filled. This is a product of, of us consuming the things of God because what happens when we begin to consume the things of God, we learn more about who God is, more about who we are, we learn more about what God has done for us through Jesus. Well, Paul says here the overflow of that is gratitude. Singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always. see the overflow of being spirit-filled is gratitude. How can you not be thankful? How can you not be thankful? What if you did sing that song? Lord, search me, try me, see if there's any offensive way in me, and he showed you something that was very offensive. Something devastating that you needed to deal with. What's our response to that? It better be gratitude. Why? Because he showed you something toxic in your life. He showed that you had a blood alcohol concentration that was way too high. There was poison there that you need to deal with, that you need to take care of. What if, what if I've sinned and, and, and I, I feel that I, I am not worthy to stand before the Lord and I, I come before him and I ask him to forgive me as King David did in Psalm 51, but I don't feel like I can lift my eyes and even come up off the ground. Is that okay then too? Is there a place for that? our response? How can it not be gratitude? When you know how dark and deadly your sin is and you bring it before a holy God and he says, I forgive you. Gratitude. That's expressed in worship. That's expressed in worship. If you'll notice, we human beings, for some unknown reason, we always seem to express our deeply heartfelt sentiments in song, right? Our radio stations are full of songs that have been written to express our affection to a significant other. Love songs. I, I remember the old tagline from the radio stations that my dad used to listen to this as a kid. It drove me crazy. Love songs. The 60s, 70s, and 80s. And the 24 hours a day, these radio stations are full of music that has been written to express heartfelt sentiment towards other people that we love. Love of country. Do we write music to express our love of country? Absolutely. There are songs that we sing that you will automatically stand up for, at least you better stand up for. Because we love and respect the country that God has given us. And it's not just us, right? There's places, other parts of the world where they've got songs that have been written. If you've ever heard uh, Rule Britannia, you hear that song played by, by, by the, one of the London orchestras where it's one of their, their patriotic songs. It makes me want to be British to hear them play their music. <laughs> and I have to think, hey, I used to be that, right? Before, before we figured out things. Other countries write music that, that, that lends appreciation to their country what we do. We write music to express our heart. It should be no different when it comes to our relationship with God. We write and sing songs because of how grateful we are for who he is and what he's done. 
So to bring this circle to a close, we started with don't get drunk on wine. That's still true, 100%. But Paul here is using that as an illustration to point out something greater. That in the same way you get drunk on wine, the same way you get filled with the Spirit. You get drunk on wine by consuming more of it. You get filled with the Spirit by consuming more of those things of God. Scripture and community with God's people and, 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 those, and, and rich, good music that God has given us. And the product of that, of that being Spirit-filled is gratitude. And the overflow of that gratitude is the wonderful privilege of worshiping God together in the community with good, heartfelt, true music. So when you come into church and you just don't find that you're not connecting with the songs, it may be that it's not the songs, but it may be that it's the singing. Think about that the next time pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for thank you for using a, a clear analogy for us to understand. Thank you, God, the analogy is true as can be, but it points to something even greater than itself, and that the call for us as followers of Jesus is to be spirit-filled. God, that we need to consume the things of God so that, so that that cup that, that needs to be filled can be filled with the things of God, filled with the spirit of God, not filled with the things of the flesh. Lord, our world wants to dump everything into our life that doesn't belong there. And we can fill our time, our precious time, with pursuits that are completely not of God. We can waste time and squander time, and we can fill our lives with all sorts of time wasters. God, help us to fill it with things that are of you. And let our worship reflect our gratitude. Let our gratitude reflect our understanding of who you are and what you've done. God, if there's sin in our lives, let us pray those difficult prayers and sing those difficult songs that challenge us to ask you to cleanse us and reveal to us our darkness. Lord, if there's sin in our lives, stand and have a time of invitation. If you'd like to pray, you're welcome to. Uh, if you'd like to sing those tough songs uh, between you and the Lord right now, sing those tough songs as we sing together and respond. Now as we stand together and sing. I am resolved no longer to linger charmed by the world's delight Things that are to worship Jesus. Amen. Uh, don't forget, backpacks are due today. Uh, if you didn't bring them this morning, that's okay. We won't come repossess the backpack today, but we would ask that you try to get it in by tonight so that those can, uh, those can get 
uh, ready to go to uh, to Kentucky. So uh, I appreciate all those who, who brought backpacks. Uh, we, uh, we're going to be contributing a large percentage of the uh, backpacks that are collected out of the association we're working with there, and I'm excited about that. Uh, so, uh, so don't forget to bring those back. Tonight's not too late. If you want to go buy a cheap backpack and fill it up, you can. Uh, so, uh, so you can still participate in that and get it back to us here tonight. Uh, don't forget, uh, we, we started Wednesday night suppers back again. So, uh, so some of folks have, have not been, uh, been, I don't know if you didn't know that we were doing that, but Wednesday night suppers are up and running again. Uh, on the bulletin, there's a little tear-off that tells you what we're having uh, for Wednesday night supper. So if you want to participate on Wednesday night supper, uh, don't forget about that tear-off tab that is there. Uh, yes, sir. What is the benefit of Wednesday night supper? You get to come and eat, eat dinner before church, and whatever's left over, we use to fund, uh, we use to fund missions and things like that. So, uh, so we helped fund the Kentucky trip with, uh, with our Wednesday night suppers from last year. So, uh, but the uh, best thing is that you get to come and, uh, and eat without having to cook and rush to get here before church. So, uh, so there you go. Uh, Philip, I'm going to ask you to dismiss us in prayer, brother. Father God, we're, we're so thankful for your mercy and grace, Lord. We're thankful for a new day that you've given us. Um, Father, I pray that we would be uh, about spiritual things and filled with spiritual things. Um, pray that you would just look after us, Lord, uh, keep, keep our eyes on you. Um, as we depart from here, we're able to assemble again. Uh, we ask these things in Christ's name.